Oh man, I am so happy to be here with you guys this week. More so than normal. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to be here. I love this church. But this week especially, I'm incredibly happy that uh, my car didn't blow up on the way here. So a little bit of, little bit of story about what happened last week. So uh, I, I live in Council Bluffs. It's a little over an hour away. And so I drive up here every day um, to come up here. I, not, I'm going to be moving up here this summer. We just want our kids to finish the school year first. And I'm looking forward to that, especially after last weekend. So what happened is I'm leaving my house about 6 a.m. It's dark outside and everything. I'm driving north on I-29 and about five minutes, five miles or so south of Mo Valley, all of a sudden the heat on my car just <laughs> overheating. And I look in my rearview mirror and I look like a comet. I'm trailing this like long tail of white smoke just for hundreds of yards behind me. And uh, so I pull over. I'm kind of freaking out. Here's the thing, here a little thing about me. I can translate Greek. I can read 2,000-year-old texts and talk about Bible till the cows come home. I don't know anything about cars. As far as I'm concerned, my car is run by a hamster on a wheel, and when the car doesn't work, it's because the hamster died. Okay? <laughs> so I pull over. I let my car calm down a little bit. And still, it stopped being angry with me. Again, hamster. And uh, so finally, when the temperature went down a little bit, started her up again, got back on the highway, drove about a mile down the road. Same thing, comment in the back, overheating. So I pulled over. At this point, I'm like freaking out. I don't know what to do. I need to get to church. Um, but it's, it's too late for me to get my wife to come pick me up and bring me to Whiting and then drive back because she works at, at the church in Council Bluffs right now. So she has her own responsibilities. My oldest son is 13, so he doesn't drive. Um, and so I, I wasn't sure what to do at this point. So I literally idled at this point because I could not get the car going. I, turned, I started the car and I idled all the way to Mo Valley. <laughs> Um, and uh, pulled off the road into that shell station right there in that exit and just sat there and prayed for a little while because at this point it's 7 in the morning. I got church at two hours. I have no idea what to do. So I go in to the, the gas station. I kind of sit down, get some coffee, and just sitting there like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. And kind of God gave me some peace on that. And I actually I gave Jed a call at that point. Cool thing. We actually had a plan uh, for COVID, just in case for some reason I got sick or something on a Saturday and I couldn't come into church, we had a plan in place. So Jed had a back pocket uh, a sermon ready to go just in case you never knew. Luckily, he had that ready to go. And so he was able to come. I was calling him like, hey, that back pocket sermon, this is the day, I guess. And so he got up and preached. Um, so I'm sitting here in this, in this uh, uh, um, truck stop diner off of the exit of 29, um, and I'm talking with, uh, I called them the council. Uh, you know, every single diner before the sun rises is full of that group of uh, old guys with white beards that are all like truckers and farmers that are just like, they never know each other, but they're all talking like they've been friends forever. Yeah, that group, the council <laughs> was all there, and so they see what's going on, and, and so I'm talking with them, and so they diagnosed my car. It's like, well, you either got a busted radiator you got a busted gasket. Either way, you're not going anywhere. So I ordered waffles. <laughs> and uh, I hosted the online service from my booth at the truck stop diner in Mo Valley. And man, Jed killed it uh, last week. I, man, Jesus really spoke through him. The Holy Spirit was present there. Nick did an amazing job. The whole staff here did amazing. Like, I am so thankful to be a part of this team here um, 
because no other church can soak that with a, like an hour or two before service starts. The lead pastor just doesn't show up. And man, they were able to run with it so well. And what's more than that, man, my phone was blowing up all day from you guys calling me to make sure that I was okay. I had offers of vehicles, offers to fix my car, offers of rides. Uh, it was awesome. And it really, really warmed my heart. I feel super thankful to be a part of this community. And I really feel cared for. Like, Angela and I feel so much, so cared for in this community. So thank you very much. My car is fixed. It's running. But I drove my wife's car this morning, <laughs> just to be sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... That's the story from last week. And before, we were, before last week's hiccup, we were in this series that we're calling Jesus Said. And basically, it's, it, Jesus Said, this whole series, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in the book of Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And this is a sermon that Jesus himself delivered to his people. It's the best sermon ever preached. He did it in three chapters. I'm taking six weeks. So you can see who's the better preacher here at this point. But yeah, so... When we started, about three weeks ago, we talked about the nature of blessing. We talked about the Beatitudes and how Jesus points out that we are all blessed. Even when we don't think we're blessed, we're blessed. And that blessing is actually meant to give us the ability to bless others and that we are blessed so that we can bless others. And then two weeks ago, we talked about this tension between living authentically and being real and also living righteously and how that isn't actually a, a true dichotomy, that in fact, God calls us to not just act generous, but to be generous. He doesn't just call us to act loving, he calls us to be loving. And then at the core, following Jesus is about a heart change, not just merely acting the part. This week, we are going to dive in to a section of scripture that I have always struggled with. I have always fought against it. I've always had a hard time wrapping my head around it because it just hits really hard to my soul. And I, I just, I always have a hard time wrapping my brain around what Jesus is saying to me. And so we're just going to jump right in. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It'll be on the screen behind me. This is Jesus talking, okay? You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. All right, I'm with you so far. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, more on that in a second, is answerable to the courts. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment? Oof. <laughs> that hits. When I read this, like, I have to ask this question. Is Jesus really saying that being angry with somebody is the same as killing them? Because if that's so, that's heavy. I don't know if I can wrap my head around that. And what about this word raka? Raka is an, uh, comes from an old Aramaic word. It's actually a, an insult. Raka literally means empty-headed. 
or it would mean uh, moron or stupid or idiot or you know whatever weird insult that you can think of to say that someone is less smart than you. That's raka. And what it's actually saying, it's, it's painting this image of the person insulting is making the other person inferior to the speaker. So he's saying, you are less than me, raka. Casting someone as inferior to yourself, according to Jesus, is the same as murdering them? Why? I need to answer that question, and that's what I've struggled with my entire Christian life. Why? Before we get into that question, we also need to look at what Jesus says about adultery because it's very similar. We're going to look into verse 27 here. It says, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ah! <laughs> if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Harsh? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So first Jesus is telling me that if I insult somebody, I'm murdering them. And now Jesus is telling me that if I ever went, whoo, that I've committed adultery. Jesus is saying that even checking out a member of the opposite sex is as serious as committing adultery. And not only that, it's so serious that Jesus says it would be better for us to cut off our hands, to gouge out our eyes, to lose body parts. It would be better for us to disfigure ourselves so that we don't do that instead of doing that and risking hell. Not a lot of chill in that statement. And certainly it's at odds with how our culture operates, isn't it? See, our culture does not operate under these rules. You can barely get out of bed in the morning before someone on TV, before someone on the radio, before someone on social media, or anywhere else, before they tell you who to be angry at. You can't get out of bed without somebody telling who's good and who's bad. You can't get out of bed without somebody telling you who's inferior. Everything from cars to cheeseburgers are sold using sexual imagery to the point that tribalism, sex, party culture and revelry, cancel culture, these are all the dominant trends in our culture. Every day we interact with this constant division and assault between this idea of Who's good? Who's bad? And then on top of that, objectifying a human being. So, if these things are actually as destructive as murder, if these seemingly everyday normal occurrences in human lives are seen by God as so ugly, so heinous, that it's better for us to cut off a hand than interact with it, then we absolutely need to make sure that we understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. So for clarification, to figure out what Jesus is talking about, we actually are going to go all the way back 
to the creation of man. All the way back to the very first book, the very first chapter of the very first book, back into Genesis. We're going to Genesis chapter 1, when God created humanity, and he says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now sit there. God created mankind in his own image. This means that as human beings, we are all created in the image of an all-powerful and infinitely complex God. Think on that for a second. This means that much like a piece of art reflects an artist, we each reflect the creator merely by existing. That means that there is something intrinsically, unshakably glorious within every single human being. Every time you draw breath, just by existing, you reflect the image of our creator. Every person, every single person holds the capacity for love, for forgiveness, for the ability to create beauty, to cause chaos and destruction. This is what it means to be created in the image of God, that we are each, as individuals, infinitely complex creatures. Think about it. If you're married to somebody for your entire life, you can still learn new things about them every single day because the reality of a human being cannot be summed up, cannot be reduced because we were created in the image of an infinitely complex God. And the interesting thing about infinity is that if you cut infinity in half, you still have infinity. So we, as human beings, merely by existing, reflect the power and grandeur of an infinitely complex God, even if we're not aware of it, just by drawing breath, we reflect that glory. Every single person, even the ones we don't agree with, even the ones that we fight with, even the ones that want to cause you harm, every single human being, whether they know it or not, bears the image of God. And we cannot take that for granted. As image bearers, everybody, every human being is worthy of honor, is worthy of love, is worthy of respect. That's why scripture tells us all the way back in Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not just a Jesus thing. We talk about that in the New Testament a lot, but that love your neighbor as yourself first appears all the way back in the early, early Old Testament in the book of Leviticus because God knew from the very beginning that people were so special. They were created with such glorious purpose in mind by reflecting his image that we needed to be told that our fellow human beings are worthy of love and honor and respect and glory. Now, back to things like murder and adultery. And while we're at it, let's lump in stealing, bearing false witness, lying. And any time you act against another human being, any time, here's the reality. You cannot act against another person, making them inferior in your mind. 
You cannot act against another person without first making them inferior in your mind. No matter what you do, if you're acting in a way that victimizes someone else, stealing, lying, I hope you're not killing people, but if you are killing people, insulting people, the first little mental gymnastics that you're making in your head is you're taking that person and you're saying, I am better than you. It only takes a second, but we all do it. Ending a life is certainly the ultimate power move, deciding that someone no longer deserves even to live, and so we first have to demote them in our mind. That's why you see it all the time. In military, they're taught to dehumanize the enemy. Or we, we might give them titles to justify our action. They're a criminal. They're an enemy combatant. They're an other. Then we can justify the action. In order to steal something that belongs to somebody else, you must first decide that they don't deserve to own that item, even by mere opportunity or that somehow you're better deserving of some way. Whatever, you have to make that decision that I am more deserving than they are. When we lie, we've decided that the person that we're lying to is not trustworthy enough to have the truth, that only I have the truth, that I am better than them, that I need to know the truth. And so we demote them. When we lust after somebody, we have objectified them. We've taken away their personhood and reduced them to their superficially attractive features. We've made them an object. We've taken away their humanity in our mind. This is also why Jesus tells us that whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Because as image bearers, we all reflect the person of God merely by existing. And so anything you do to a fellow human being, a fellow image bearer of God, can be received as doing it to God himself. Every time that we insult somebody on Facebook, we're insulting God. Every time we lash out at a waiter, or a cashier, or a police officer, or the guy driving ahead of us, every time I fight with my sibling, I'm causing harm to the one that made him. Every time I call the person on TV an idiot, I'm saying raka to that person's creator. Every time that I diminish the standing of another human being, I am acting against God himself. So this is why insulting somebody is the same as murder because you are diminishing the person. You're diminishing a person who's created in the image of God, who's a cherished creation of a loving God. You're taking that person and saying they are less. That's why insult and murder check the same box. Lusting after somebody is the same as committing adultery because you are reducing that person to a superficial shell 
and denying them the glory and the honor and the respect that they deserve as a person created in the image of God, even if only in your mind, you're doing that. So Jesus here, in clarifying how we are called to treat others, he has effectively raised the bar so high that I am no longer confident that I can reach it. And that's why I have such a hard time with this. Because I've messed up. (laughs) I've said hurtful things. I've hurt people. And even if I'm able to go through the type of heart change, the type of total restoration of my soul to to be able to someday get to a point when I no longer see people like that, when I completely abandon those destructive tendencies, even if I can somehow achieve that level of goodness, I'm going to mess up again. I'm fairly certain that I'm going to slip up at some point. Right? Oof, it hits. When I read that part of the scripture, it always hits because I'm like, I am guilty. I don't want to be. I want to be righteous. I don't want to be guilty. But when I read that, not only do I understand that I've sinned, but I understand how destructive my sin is because I've been reducing people I've been reducing the image of God. I'm guilty. But Jesus offers us a solution. See, rather than make us face the wrath of our treatment of others, he instead takes the punishment that was actually meant for us. Jesus, being himself perfectly innocent, allowed himself to be killed on our behalf to come into our world, to live our life, to pay our price, to die my death. And in doing so, pay the price for my destructive tendencies. He did this out of love for God's people. Because you are a cherished creation of God, he has done this for you because he loves you so deeply and desperately wants you close to him, even if you think you don't deserve it. No matter what, the darkest secret in your head, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how many times you've failed, he wants you close and he still went to the cross for you. And in doing so, he, by going to the cross, by paying that payment, he's freed us from being a slave to our destructive tendencies. So now all Christians everywhere only treat other, other people with respect and love, right? Everything's good, hunky-dory, end of sermon. No. Not at all. We all continue to battle our sinful nature, and temptation still exists. However, since our failures no longer define us, we are suddenly free to be agents of reconciliation, Agents of grace rather than continue to feed our destructive desires. 
Now that I know how much I, I have hurt people with my decisions, I know beyond all shadow of doubt that I want to avoid that as much as possible. And I'm going to run from that. But when I do slip up, I know that it's not going to be held against me. And instead, because it's not held against me, I'm suddenly free to love people like never before, to embrace them like never before, to act as a force of reconciliation, to bring people together rather than pull them apart. As the people of God, it is our responsibility to bring humanity, to bring creation itself back God. We are one family tied together by the holy responsibility, this holy purpose that we each have as being image bearers of God. The best way to honor both our purpose, both our purpose and our creator is to work towards that reconciliation through the grace that's offered us. Jesus explains this in Matthew 5, chapter I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 5, verse 23. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and while you're there, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, if you want to honor our Father, if you want to live up to the holy purpose and calling that has been put before you, we need to put aside our anger. We need to reconcile our relationships. And we need to give people the honor and respect that is due to them as bearers of the image of God. Folks, it's our job as God's people to reflect God's light into the darkest corners of the world. That means that we have to be ready to face the dark corners of the world. And it won't always be fun. <laughs> and there will be personal conflict. But we cannot worship and follow Jesus while also diminishing his people. We cannot claim to both honor God and love him while simultaneously hate the things that bear his image. We cannot say that we love God and despise his creation. Instead, as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus that are living in pursuit of the kingdom that he has put in front of us, as followers of him, we are called to lift others up, not tear them down. Lift others up, elevating them not to where we are, but to lift them up beyond ourselves. That's what love is. And yes, we're supposed to do that even when we disagree with them. We're called to treat others with reverence, with respect and honor because they are representatives of our Father merely by existing. Even if they don't know it. We are called to love God's creation. We are called to celebrate the beauty and the diversity that exists beyond ourselves. even when it's dangerous. 
We are called to be reconcilers, to reconcile the world back to Jesus. We have to make good on that. It's that important. In this way, we work towards being a force in this world for peace, for, for grace, for forgiveness, for moving forward, for building his kingdom, for changing the world because we love people. And we love them because God loves them. Because they reflect the image of an amazing, glorious, and infinite God. We need to be a force in this world that brings reconciliation. Not on our terms. Not on our opinion. Not on, not on where we stand. But to bring reconciliation in God's terms. Let's pray. Dear Father, I confess I have been destructive. I have said things that have hurt others. Done things that have hurt others. I have demoted people in my mind. I've done that. I know I have. And, and what's worse is I know I'm going to do it again. I would love to be able to say that I did it without knowing, but there are some times that I've done it knowing full well that I'm doing something wrong. So the fact that you'd forgive me, that you'd forgive us of that kind of destruction blows me away. God, let us be a force that is changed by that forgiveness. Let us be a force as we step out of this place that is bound by this single mission of reconciliation, of grace, of forgiveness. Let us pull people together. See people through your eyes. I, I, don't, I don't trust my eyes. I don't trust my opinions. I don't, I don't, I'll get angry at things. I need you. I need to see things the way you see them. I need to have a heart like yours. I need to see people like you see them. And if we act like that, if we act like you, if we give ourselves over to you in that moment, if we truly rest in you, I totally believe this world can change, and it can change overnight. So for that, God, oh man, I worship you in anticipation of that day because nothing's impossible with you. So God, make us your people. Continue to heal us. Continue to fix us when we mess up. But above all, make us a force of change, reconciliation, and peace in this broken world. God, you are so good. In Jesus' name, amen.